Brianna. And I'm Caitlin. And welcome back to Corrupted Beings. Alright guys, so for today's episode, we're going to stick with our 20s theme, and we're going to be talking about Leopold and Loeb. I've never heard of this case before. Honestly, I didn't either until I was assigned it my freshman year in high school. And I was very resentful resentful about it because it wasn't like a big serial killer case. But I'm glad I did it because it's kind of stuck with me ever since. And here we are doing it now. (laughs) Um, So this case does involve the murder of a child. Okay. Uh, I say child. He was 14, but that's a child to me. Yeah. And uh, they were best known for the murder of Bobby Franks. And it was also called the crime of the 20th century. Mm. not only known for the murder but they were also very smart like really smart mm-hmm. and they were very well it was odd for the time that you be someone be so rich and smart and then they committed this heinous act like it was just, it was unheard of per se mm-hmm. so we're gonna start with nathan uh which is leopold nathan frudenthal leopold jr was born on yeah, it's a name. I was born on November 19th, 1904 in Chicago, Illinois to Frank and Florence Leopold. They were German-Jewish immigrants who made a fortune in the freight and transport business. I'm pretty sure his father inherited it. Um, and they were extremely wealthy. Nice. Like, extremely wealthy, for the, especially for the 20s. Yeah. Um, at a young age, he showed tremendous intellectual ability. He was really smart. Okay. Um, although it is also said that he could have exaggerated it when he wrote his own autobiography. <laughs> uh, he claimed to have spoken his first words at four months old. <laughs> okay. Um, he I'm pretty re- sure you couldn't even say baba. <laughs> he reported to have studied 15 languages and could speak five of them fluently. Yeah, I was going to say studied and speak are two different things. Because I've studied Italian, but I can only say suck my ass. Like, I can only say sucare mi culo, and I'm pretty sure I don't even say that right. <laughs> um, so, because he was so smart, he found it very difficult to make friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of this, he was bullied in public school. He also claimed that he was sexually abused by his governess when he was 12. Uh, As he grew up, making friends didn't get any easier with the combination of his very high IQ, which they say ranged from 210 to 220. Wow. And that's high. That's high. Um, And the combination with his wealth, and he has this superiority complex that he was better than everybody else. He wasn't going to make friends anytime soon. Know some people like that. Yeah. He (laughs) (laughs) He was considered to be aloof. And had a dislike for humankind, except for Loeb, who he viewed as his equal. Okay. And it was also because he had a crush on him, basically. Yeah. Uh, he graduated high school and started attending college when he was just 15. Wow. And at the time of the murder, he had already had an undergraduate degree from the University of Chicago and planned to attend law school. Holy moly. So he was a genius. He was smart. He yeah, was for smart. smart. So now we're going to talk a little bit about Richard Loeb and get a little background on him. Richard Albert Loeb was born on June 11th, 1905. So he was younger than uh, Leopold. In Chicago, Illinois as well, to Albert and Anna Loeb. Albert was a wealthy lawyer and former vice president of Sears, Roebuck, and Company and possessed an estimated amount of $10 million. Wow. So for the 20s, like, that was a lot of money. Yeah, that's a lot of money. For the, like, yeah. Although it was especially was exceptionally intelligent as well with an IQ of 160. He preferred to socialize and make friends as when Leopold let rather just stand back and just yeah 
focus on education. He graduated high school at 14. He was impossibly good looking and he was very, very well built and tall. Always indulging in indestructive behavior, and that would, but that would do nothing to diminish the desire Leopold had for him. Hmm. So, like he, Leopold was attracted to this like daredevilish, handsome, yeah, lope. Uh, he became the youngest graduate at University of Michigan at seventeen, and later began attending the University of Chicago for an undergraduate studies in history. Wow, uh, and that's what he was doing when the murder occurred. So, they. They kind of knew each other growing up. They both grew up, grew up, grew up <laughs> in a fluent Jewish neighborhood called Kenwood in the south side of Chicago. And Loeb's family had a mansion that was only two blocks away from Leopold's. Oh wow! So they were they grew up together basically. Well, yeah, but they really weren't friends. Like they knew of each other. Well, I mean, um, what's his name? Didn't have any friends. No, like he couldn't make friends because like everyone thought he was just weird. I mean, you are, <laughs> but. <laughs> You are. I mean, I digress. (laughs) I digress. Um, They didn't become close until the 1920s when they both attended the University of Chicago for graduate degrees. More specifically, when they both found out they were interested in crime. And when they both found out they were gay? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It was a joke. (laughs) Well, technically they were. You don't call someone your lover. I want to say Leopold was bisexual because he married a woman later on. Mm. But it was, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Because there's, there's a lot of drama surrounding that. Um, Leopold was fascinated by this German scientist concept of Superman, which interpreted, quote, them as transcendent individuals possessing extraordinary and unusual capabilities whose superior intellects allowed them to rise above the law and rules that bound the unimportant average population. So the movie split without the multiple personalities. Basically. Also, Brie, I hate to break to you, but we fall under the uh, unimportant average population. I knew that when I couldn't read. <laughs> when I said curd instead of cured in the last episode. Uh, <laughs> so he later wrote a letter to Loeb saying, quote, A Superman is an account of certain superior qualities inherent in him, exempt from the ordinary laws which govern men. He is not liable for anything he may do. This is how he viewed himself and Loeb. They thought that they were above the law and that they could do anything because they were so smart and they thought that this gave them immunity from crimes. I mean, it did, right? I mean, they're supermen. Uh, basically, Superman yeah. can't get arrested. No, they can't do that. Um, so because of this, they started out small with crimes like petty theft and vandalism, but those never... Standard. Right. They never got the recognition that Loeb so wanted. Loeb kept... Um, Leopold around because he was because Leopold admired him and uh that just fed into Loeb's ego that he was this criminal mastermind and he could get away with anything Mm -hmm. so Loeb was like that like I like I said earlier he had like a Ted Bundy complex okay he was approachable he could sweet talk and he needed his hype man exactly I got so during a particular night of November 10th which we'll get into the details, details in a minute um, Leopold was beginning to feel as though this relationship was only one-sided and that he always helped Loeb, but Loeb kept him at, like, arm's distance. Okay. And wasn't fully yeah. into the relationship. Well, Loeb, being more social than Leopold was, was able to, like, sweet-talk him and, like, calm him down and tell him, oh, no, like, I love you, like, assure his reassurance of affection and loyalty. And that ended the lover's quarrel, nothing else said about it. Okay. 
On this evening of November 10th, 1923, Leopold had agreed to drive the six hours with Loeb to the University of Michigan to burglarize Loeb's former fraternity, Zeta Beta Tau. Road trip. Um, with them carrying two revolvers and two chisels wrapped in tape, so the it was like a, it looked like a club, basically. Can I say something? Yeah. I was reading your notes and I thought that said chicken wrap. You should show how hungry I am. <laughs> oh. okay, keep going. Great notes. So they walked away with only $80 in cash, a couple of watches, some pen knives, which I'm not real sure what those are, and a, type, like what they are. a typewriter, which would later be used to type the ransom note. Hoo-hoo. So this will come back into play. Um, on the way home, after like this is on the way home is when they had their fight, and um, after they made up, Loeb was going on and on about how he wanted to commit the perfect crime, like one that would get Chicago talking. Now keep in mind, this is the same time that Al Capone was like doing his so thing. So if we're talking about them now, they didn't commit the perfect crime. No, and you'll find out why. Okay. Um. So what could be more perfect than kidnapping and the murder of a child? Because that's not heinous like that's disgusting can you just rob a bank it was daring and they could plan it where no one could catch them because they were geniuses and they were supermen so they could get away with anything so this was the plan Loeb said that they asked for a ransom and was able to collect it without being caught it would be daring and knowing to figure out who had done it when the murder happened Leopold was 19 at the time studying law and Loeb was 18 taking graduate courses in history it's sad they could have had such great lives they could have if they well, would have just actually, stuck with the law thing. now i hate to defend him but Leopold does go on to make something well, of his life i meant like they could have just pushed to side and just been like lovers and lawyers l and l Leopold and Loeb <laughs> Not planned, not planned. So, once Loeb suggested the idea of kidnapping, Leopold was automatically in it. He was like, I have no doubts. Whatever you say, go. Ride or die, bitch. they spent long hours discussing the plan. Some sources, they said they planned this for months, down to every detail, because this was going to be the perfect crime. Let me guess, did they write anything down? (laughs) No. Damn it. I love when they do that. (laughs) Um, They came up with the with a ransom of $10 million, and then they would collect it by directing the victim's father to throw the package from a train going south of Chicago along the tracks west of Lake Michigan, where they would be waiting below to catch it, grab it, and drive away. That's um, trust in someone else a lot. Exactly. Especially someone whose kid you kidnapped. Mm, yeah. That's a lot of trust in a person that they right. care that much about their kid. Once the plan was set... Not saying he didn't. That was a joke. <laughs> Let me not get, <laughs> not get attacked. Once the plan was set, all they needed was a victim. Poor so kid. this is the murder. And oh. this is where it gets sad. Because they they do a number on this kid. Oh. Um, on May 21st, 1924, Leopold and Loeb started driving around in a rental car that Leopold uh, rented under a false name. Around the streets of Southside Chicago looking for a victim. Around 5 p.m., they were driving for about two hours. They almost decided to go home and try again another day. But as they kept driving, Loeb, who was sitting in the rear passenger side, saw his cousin, 14-year-old Bobby, Robert Bobby Franks. His cousin? Second cousin, yeah. Cousin's a cousin, man. For real. So, Loeb knew Bobby's father was wealthy and could easily pay the ransom. So, he tapped Leopold on the shoulder to let him know, hey, I found him. Let's Mm -hmm. go get him. So Leopold turned the car around and pulled up beside Bobby. When Loeb rolled the window down, he offered Bobby a ride home, and Bobby 
kindly declined because he was almost home, but Loeb told him that he wanted to talk to him about a tennis racket that he had, and he wanted to buy one for his brother. So Bobby was like, okay. So he got in the car. Loeb asked if they could drive him around the block, and he said it was okay, so they did. What's the worst that could happen? Like, you yeah, know, that's his fa- cousin. That's family. You know, nothing's going to happen. You don't trust family. Well, they kept driving, and finally Loeb reached over to the seat and placed his hand over Bobby's mouth to keep him from crying out, and he took the taped chisel that he had stashed in the back seat that looked like a club and smashed it in the back of Bobby's skull. Mm. And he did it once again with as much force as possible, but Bobby still remained conscious. At this point, Bobby turned halfway around and he was facing Loeb in the back, trying to protect himself from the blows, lifting up his arms to his face, and only for Loeb to smash the chisel into his head two more times while he was fighting for his life. Wow. But he was still alive. But the last blow uh, busted his forehead. Mm-hmm. So they're like it was just gushing blood. Blood was everywhere. Getting all over the car, over the seat, all over Leopold's pants. I mean... Mm, Leopold was probably pissed. <laughs> honestly, like, probably. But, like, he didn't say anything because he didn't go against Loeb. Like, he yeah, didn't do yeah. that. Um, but this was completely unexplainable to Loeb because he was... Surely, like, four blows would have been enough to kill him. Like, he was like, what the heck is happening? Like, it, it was... sounds like Ed Kemper when he's like, movies make it look so easy. Right, exactly. Yeah. He was like, what the heck? And they like, bleed a lot. Yeah, he was like, what the heck? Especially this... the head has so much. Right. That's like, probably... Right. The neck up probably produces the most blood. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, um, when this wasn't happening, because it wasn't going to plan, Loeb said that he reached to the front and pulled Bobby to the back seat with him and proceeded to take a rag... And shove it forcefully down his throat as far as it could go. It's brutal. And then tape it shut. Wow. Unfortunately, this did kill Bobby because oh. he couldn't breathe. Yeah. Um, Loeb said that his body just went limp and fell to the floor. Oh. So once Bobby was dead, they wrapped his body in a blanket and placed it in the backseat of the car, drove to a restaurant in Indiana, and had a beer and hot dog. Yeah. So My disgust for these men got worse when they ate a hot dog. <laughs> It's not just the fact that they killed somebody and went to eat food. It was the fact that they had a hot dog. Hot dogs are gross, man. I'm, trust me, I know. They always make me throw up. I don't like hot dogs. And I'm already wanting to throw up for what they just did to that kid's cousin. Um. So they drove around until it got dark, and then they carried the body 200 feet into the uh, Wolf Lake for 20 miles outside of Chicago. I'm sorry, can we just take a minute how I wrote like? Wolf like? <laughs> That's why I was confused. I was like, is there going to be wolves? Like, did they feed him to the wolves? So once they got there and they were going to dispose of the body, they argued again about which acid to use to distru- to cover up the crime. <sighs> Do both. So fear acid or hydrochloric acid, which would be better? Both. And because they were two geniuses, they probably wanted to do this whole lot debate about what to use. Both. <laughs> um, Double homicide. So because the Wolf Lake was so marshy and remotely out there they figured that no one could find it and it would just decompose from the constant water running over it yeah um i get when, the thought process when they finally agreed on the hydrochloric acid they uh they burned the face his genitals and a scar that could id him mm. yeah it's oof. so after they disposed of the I body they called the house and then they wrote a ransom note on the typewriter that they sto- stole back in November at the frat. Okay. In the call to the Frank's residence, they stated that Bobby was safe, but they would, but they would be killing him if they contacted the police and demanded the ten million dollar in ransom be in twenties and fifties, and that they would send a letter describing the plan for the drop. Now remember, they called it saying Bobby was safe yeah. when he was already dead. I know. 
It's sad and that's disgusting to me. And like, also, why are you in your 20s and 50s? You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. <laughs> right, Brie. Um, so in the, in the ransom note, they entitled it Dear Sir, which basically, again, warned them against the police and it gave them the letter of instructions um, that he was to go to a payphone, the father, his name was Jacob Franks, enter a taxi, board the train, head for Michigan City, Indiana, there, he would find a message telling him to go to the rear of the platform, and once he saw Champion Factory, he was to throw the money off the train where they were waiting to collect it. So, I know they were counting on him not going to the police, but if Correct. he went to the police, they set up the perfect place for the police to go right there. Well, I don't think they knew. He, they didn't put it in the in the note that they were waiting for the thing, yeah. money. They just, just throw it off. Yeah. Well... They were, you're right, they were trusting the fact that the father would value the life of the kid who he thought was still alive. Yeah. Then going to the cops. Exactly. Well, this was an elaborate plan that was quickly ruined because they, the body was discovered by a work crew member before the ransom could be even be delivered. Bruh. So that whole, this marsh is inconspicuous and no one can find it, yeah. Psych. They should have threw him in one of the Great Lakes right next to him. Exactly. So, I'm assuming the body informed, Ms. like, the police informed Mr. Franks that the body matching Bobby's size had been found. Yeah. Because I'm sure Mrs. Franks had called the cops. Yeah. But, Jacob didn't want to believe that it was his son, so they had an, his uncle went and ID'd Bobby. Um, and then called Franks moments before he left to deliver the ransom, which was good that he caught him in time. Yeah. Early suspects in the investigation were Bobby's teachers at his school, but they were quickly dismissed. One teacher ended up filing a lawsuit against the city after his fingers were broken during interrogation. Chicago in the 20s was a wild time. And what's even crazier is Loeb helped with the, helped the detectives find like to find the killers and gave them leads. Yikes. And no one seemed to suspect him because he was related to the family, but we now know like usually that's the first people you question. Yeah, you don't trust anyone, you know. I already said that once in the episode. Yeah. You don't trust family. Nope. So, when the body was found and the police investigated, they found next to it a pair of glasses that had been patented by an iron glass store called Almer & Co. That store had told the police that they only sold three glasses with that specific frame, and one was to Nathan Leopold. Bro! <laughs> Perfect crime vibe. So, apparently, during the disposal of the body, that's when they had fallen out of his pocket, and he didn't realize it. It was ten... Why weren't they on his face? Right. So, they ended up confessing after 10 days. Mm, but, when Leopold was interrogated first, he denied being the culprit and insisted that he was he only dropped the glasses because he was leading a bird-watching group because he's a, he was an expert ornithologist. Oh, yeah, that don't work. Um, next to the body, though. Right. Coincidence? I think not. So, during the time that they're questioning Leopold, they brought Loeb in to question him. And Loeb confessed to everything. Mm-hmm. But... He told them that it was Leopold who killed Bobby and he was the one driving the car. And that the original plan was they were going to strangle him together to share the blame, but Leopold didn't want to do that. Oh my god. Yeah. So when late when they told Leopold this, he later confessed that Loeb was the killer and that Leopold was the one that drove. Yeah. Each confession gave most of the details of the crime except who actually killed him. Okay. When they asked why Bobby was chosen, they said it was quote-unquote pure accident, and they had originally chosen 11-year-old Armand Dutch, 
who was the grandson to the wealthiest man in Chicago, but he was spared because they couldn't locate him because he was picked up from school early for a dental appointment. He later on did an interview and they asked him, like, how did it feel? He was like, what are the chances that on the one day I'm supposed to be murdered, I had a dentist appointment out of all the days? Yeah. So I bet you he was thanking the good lords for that doctor. (laughs) For real. Um, That was some divine intervention. So when asked why the murder was committed in general, Leopold said, a thirst for the knowledge is highly commendable, no matter what extreme pain or injury it may inflict upon others. A six-year-old boy is just is justified in pulling the wings from a fly. If so, doing doing that, he learns that without wings, the fly is helpless. I don't think a fly and a human are the same thing. Flies die after like four days anyway. Well, in his mind, you know, it was fine because he was just trying to get a taste for it. Yeah. He was just trying... To him, it was an experiment. Yeah, he was just justifying... Oh, okay. He just wanted to see what it was like to kill someone. Right, I think, like... It's science. He was... He was a legit sociopath. Like, I don't yeah. think he was a psychopath. I think he was a sociopath. Mm. I don't can't remember the difference between the two, but I definitely think he was a sociopath. So, uh, they went to trial, but it really wasn't trial because you'll find out later on that uh, it was held at Cook County Courthouse. Cook County. Don't you have family there? My great-grandpa and my grandma, they all, they lived in the south side of Chicago. Okay. So this became a media spectacle because, like I said earlier, it was very rare that someone of such stature and wealth and, like, knowledge could be even involved in something so heinous as yeah. the murder of a child. Again, I say child. He was 14, but that's a baby to me. Like, that's a child. Yeah. He's a minor. He's under 18. Exactly. So Legally child. Uh, this was labeled as the trial of the century. Um, Loeb's family hired Clarence Darrow, who was a famous defense attorney. It was rumored that they pay him, paid him $1 million, but it was actually $70,000. But it was later uh, calculated that in 2019 that he would have made, it would have been a million. Yeah. Um, Darrow took the case because he opposed the capital punishment, and that's what, it was basically what they were going for. Um, it was assumed that they were going to go for a reason, or guilty by reason of insanity, but Darrow concluded that that would end in a conviction and the death penalty, and he entered a plea of guilty in hopes of getting life and punishment, life okay. imprisonment instead. Well, yeah, because they're smart, so they can't plead insanity when they have, like, that high IQ and, like, their background. So, because they pled guilty, they didn't go to trial, but they went to sentencing. Sentencing lasts 32 days. Um, state's attorney Robert E. Crow had over a hundred witnesses de- detailing the crimes of the case and told the press that the most complete case ever presented to the grand jury ever. Um, and, def- and that the defendants would certainly hang. So not only did they confess, but they demonstrated how they did it. Like they, they provided the typewriter, like everything. Wow. Like, yeah, so much for the perfect crime. <laughs> for being a geniuses as they are, it was like, yo, you fessed up real fast. Real fast. Well, Loeb thought he was going to get away with it by putting it on Leopold. But yeah. then Leopold got over his like little haze that he had when it came to Loeb and was like, yeah, nah, this is what really happened. I was just driving. And yes, I did hide the body, but I was just driving. I did not kill the kid. So I didn't kill my own cousin. Clarence Darrow presented extensive psychiatric testimony um, to prove mitigate, mitigating circumstances, which are conditions or happenings which do not excuse or justify criminal conduct, but lead... It's kind of saying... This is why he did it. It's not excusing it, but this is why. Yeah. Um, including child neglect in the form of absent parents, like with the whole governess situation. Like yeah. Their parents weren't there, so that kind of like is why they did it. Um, and in Leopold's case, the sexual abuse. Um, one witness testified to Leo- Leopold and Loeb's abnormalities, 
which one being a dysfunctional endocrine gland, which I'm not real sure why that had anything to do with it. Mm-mm. And the, another one testified that they saw delusions for the reason of the murders. Yeah. <laughs> so. I think they just wanted to kill somebody. This trial, I think they just wanted to get a taste for it. Yeah. I think Loeb's whole, I think if they didn't get caught for this, they would have kept going. They would have turned into serial killers. 100%. I think Loeb's idea was to commit the perfect crime because he wanted to be able to be like, Oh, I outsmarted the police. Like, yes. I think his whole goal was out outsmart the police. I think Leopold's whole thing was just trying to make Loeb happy. Yeah. Like, I think that's oh, what sure. it was. So, this trial also included Clarence Darrow's 12-hour-long speech. 12-hour-long speech. I'm not going to read it to y'all because it was so long, but there's a recap statement, and it says, quote, the inhumane methods and punishment of American justice system and the youth and the immaturity immaturity of the accused so he's basically saying that the american justice system has punishments and the youth like it can't in a way charge those that are immature that's stupid in his mind they were immature i'm like they're 18 and 19 they knew what was wrong they're grown-ass men they knew what was wrong they they knew what was wrong so the judge was persuaded with this and based his decision on this and after 12 days on september 10th um 1924 uh he sends both to life in prison for the murder plus 99 years for kidnapping good yes um well let's just say Loeb got what was coming to him um nice. they were initially both held at the Juliet prison but kept far away as possible um because considering the heinous act of the crime they really couldn't be together and they were lovers so you don't want lovers being together exactly but they still managed to maintain a friendship behind bars it's not clear whether or not it was a romantic relationship but just a friendship i mean you kill someone together well not only that but Loeb was literally leopold's only friend if you think true 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 um they were both transferred to statesville penitentiary leopold before Loeb, um and then they reconnected when they got there together, and while they were there, they expanded the school system inside the prison. Yeah. So they did something. Doesn't make up for it. It doesn't make up for it, but, good, up for on it, you. but good for you. Um, you get a gold star. So on January 28th, 1936, Richard Loeb was attacked by James Day with a straight razor in the shower and died soon after. Hell yeah, James. So before I say this, remember the other day when we were having the thought about like committing murder and you're like, oh, I thought he was like gay, whatever. The yeah, the, oh, the gay panic. The, the gay, gay pan- panic defense. Yeah, that. So Day claimed that Loeb attacked him and left him unharmed while Loeb suffered over 50 stab wounds, including defensive wounds, also having his neck slit. Day had claimed later that Loeb had propositioned him and attempted to sexually assault him and was later tried and quit, acquitted for the murder. I still don't agree with the gay panic defense, but I'm not mad about him using it against this dude. <laughs> but. So Leopold said in an interview that, that he was like, there's no way Loeb would have sexually assaulted the yeah. guy. Like, he was kind of like, oh, whatever. Like, Loeb was the type of guy that he didn't need to. He didn't care about sex. Well, not, not only that, but, like, he didn't need to assault anybody. Like, he just... He could have got him. He could have got it. Yeah. Like, like I said, he was, like, the 1920s... He could have dropped some soap and got it. <laughs> In my mind, like, I picture... Anyway, not mad at this man for murdering him. I... Well, he got... He was acquitted for it, so that's good. Yeah, I mean, he murdered a guy that murdered a 14-year-old. That's what happens to child predators. I mean, yeah. They may not, not have sexually abused the child, but that's what you get for touching a child in any way, shape, or yep. form. Um. So after Loeb's murder, 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 
Um, Leopold a... continued his murder murder work, <laughs> considered his work in prison after Loeb's death, but he suffered from depression. That was his bestie. Right. Like, I think, I think Leopold genuinely cared for Loeb. I don't think... Loeb now, gave a shit about Leopold. I think in Loeb, like, I think Loeb was a psychopath. Yeah. I don't think he could care for anybody but himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he became a model prisoner and made changes to the school, or the prison, including the school... Um, becoming a teacher in it and reorganizing the library. And he also volunteered in the prison hospital. So he was using his knowledge for the better. That's good. Still doesn't excuse the fact that he killed, like he was an accomplice to the murder of a 14-year-old. He was okay with killing a 14-year-old, so fuck him. Yeah. Well, I I don't want to defend him, but I want to, like, I want to be like, I think Loeb had this... Hold on him. Hold on him. And in his mind... Like, he just couldn't find it in him to say no to Loeb. Mm-hmm. I think he, like, I don't think he could have stopped him if he wanted to. Yeah, I get that. But at the same time, he was still, whether he, he had multiple chances Correct. to say no. Correct. So either way, he helps commit a premeditated murder. Oh, 100%. Like, I, he's guilty, no doubt. Yeah. I just think it was, I don't know. Um. So in 1944, Leopold volu- volunteered to be in the malaria study at the prison where he was intentionally given the pathogens and subject to experimental treatments to try and cure it. Yeah. Which, yay, good for you. You're helping save mankind after you've taken the life of a 14-year-old. But anyways, um, and then in 1950, he was asked by Meyer Levin, a University of Chicago student, to write a novel based on the murder. And in response, he said he didn't want his story to be a work of fiction, but offered Levin a chance to work with him um, on his memoir, um, Levin rejected the idea and continued his book alone, entitled it "Compulsion," mm. um, which helped in which he depicted Le- Leopold as a brilliant yet disturbed teen with a psychological need to kill and an obsession with Loeb. He was, yeah. Well, when asked about Levin's book, he said it made him quote physically sick. More than once, I lay the book down and wait for the nausea to subside. I felt as as I suppose a naked man would feel when he were exposed and start naked under a light of a strong audience in the spotlight. I mean, at the same time, though, if you weren't driving the car, would you have would you have acted in it? Maybe their plan was to strangle him together, but he happened to be driving the car. And Leopold just know. started too well, soon. Or Loeb just started Maybe, too but soon. like, why would he have the chisel in the back if he wasn't planning on using it? That's true. Yeah, but they could have been planning on killing it together. Well, I think... The other dude wanted to kill, for sure. Well, what I think was, maybe they agreed on it, and then Loeb was like, you know what, screw you, I wanted this all myself. Yeah. Um. So, in 1958, his autobiography entitled Life Plus 99, as part of his win for parole, was published. It's a good name. I mean, it's clever. Um, it started with the immediate aftermath of the crime, but he uh, quickly gained hate for his deliberate refusal to reaccount for his childhood or describe details of the murder. Yeah. He was also accused of writing this book only to fix his public image by disregarding his past. Yeah, no one's going to forget about your past, man. So, post-prison, after 33 years, he was finally granted parole in March of 1958. And he tried, in April, he tried setting up the... Um, leopold foundation um using the royalties he made from the book hey, that's a typo don't look at it 
I'm talking about the fact that I'm so glad that killers and like criminals oh, cannot it, no, make money ready. off of that it, shit anymore. No. So he tried to make money off of it to help set up a foundation for the support of delinquent teenagers, but the state of Illinois denied it because it violated his parole. Good. Not because it was illegal, but it was a violation of the parole, which yeah. is kind of illegal. Um, but in 1959, Leopold tried to block the production of the book Compulsion into a movie, saying that it defamed him and invaded his privacy. But the Supreme Court ruled against him, seeing as though he confessed to the quote-unquote crime of the century and didn't see how the movie could do any more damage. For real. Than like, he did to himself. You're, you're literally a murderer and you're worried about a movie? I don't think he fully grasped the severity of the situation. Being as as a genius he was, like I don't think he physically understood the yeah. drastics of the situation that he confessed to. Yeah, because in his mind, it was he didn't do anything. I didn't kill him. Yeah, I was just there. Yeah, I get. But it. in our eyes, he's just as guilty as the one committing the crime. Yes. Um. So he became a medical can, medical can, uh, the, the technician focusing on labs and x-rays in Puerto Rico when he accepted a job from the Re- Brethren Service Commission. He said in an article, To me, the Brethren Service Commission offered the job, the home, and the sponsorship without which a man cannot be paroled. But it gave me so much more than that. The companionship, the acceptance, the love, which I would have rendered a violation of parole almost impossible. Um, there, he was known as Nate to his co-workers, and they didn't know about his previous encounter. Where did he get Nate from? I, that's just what... It, I, I don't know. I couldn't he find... He don't look like a Nate. How did they believe that? Well, he don't look like a murderer either, but he is. Kind of looks like a murderer. He had, like, a unibrow. Most of the people from the 20s look like murderers. He had, like, a unibrow. I can see why Lobe was a cute one. <laughs> it's terrible to say, but it's true. I see why he didn't have friends. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the fact that he thought he was better than everybody else, and he hated mankind. Period, sis. So later on, he moved to San Cruz, Puerto Rico, where he married a widowed florist, who was a woman, I'm just saying. He earned a master's degree at the University of Puerto Rico, um, and then he taught classes. He then became a researcher in a social service program uh, for the Department of Health, and he worked as a urban and renewal housing agency. Um, he also did research on leprosy at the University of Puerto Rico Schools of Medicine, um, and he was active in the Natural History Society of Puerto Rico, traveling throughout the island to observe its bird life. He published a book um, called The Birds of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, and he spoke of his intention to write a book, another one called Reach for a Halo, about his life following prison, but he never got to, because he died of a diabetes-related heart attack on August 29th, 1971, at the age of 66. He lived too long a life, for my liking. And his corneas were donated. Okay, I'm so torn because he is a horrible person, but he also did good things, but that doesn't make up for him being a horrible person. And like, it has me torn on the inside. I'm telling you, I told you you're going to hate this case. Yeah. I'm very torn. Because nothing excuses the murder of a... What he did, but I'm glad prison is supposed to be... Prison's not supposed to throw you in there and lock you away forever. It's supposed to reform you, and I'm glad that prison did reform him. Yep. The justice system finally did something right in that way, but I don't like the man. I'm glad that he was successfully reformed, well, though. Guess what? Makes Good you on feel him. Me, if it makes you feel any better. He probably wouldn't like you either. Yeah, I don't give a shit anyway. <laughs> we wouldn't have gone along. He was a nerd, right? <laughs> I definitely with our IQs, not nah. getting not. I'm probably together. like, 
less than half of his. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in real life, this this murder inspired the works of film and fiction, including the play Rope by Patrick Hamilton, as well as the Alfred Hitchcock film Rope in 1948. Um... The later on, the book by Meyer Levin's novel was turned into a movie in 1959. Um, in 1957, two more fictionalized novels were released: "Nothing But the Night" and "Little Brother Fate" by Mary Carter Roberts. Never the Sinner. It's a play in 1988, um, and it was ba- that was based on uh, newspaper accounts of the case and included an explicit portrayal of Leopold and Loeb's sexual relationship. So that got into more detail of their like relationship um what i read the next line yeah um in 2019 the story was fictionally retold again in the third season of the sinner oh i'm not talking about that line and his book murder most queer by 2014 what kind of name murder most queer i've read about it before but i could i've never heard of any of those but just murder most queer i was like what i knew of alfred hitchcock because i mean it's a clot like he's a classic guy um Anyway, so but know the Mur- name. Murder Most Queer was a theater scholar of Jordan Schildkraut. Schildkraut sounds good to me. Examines the changing attitudes towards homosexuality, homosexuality in various theatrical and cinematic representations of the Leopold and Loeb case. Yeah, uh, do it's your crazy. Do, do some research on this case because it's a it's a it's an interesting read. There's a lot of facts I didn't cover because there's just so much I could mm-hmm. get. Like I didn't want to like drag on yeah like it's repetitive i mean we did two episodes in a row about chicago in the 20s <laughs> um but yeah so thank you for listening yes if you like to email us or contact us email us at corrupted beings podcast at gmail.com if you want to talk to us on facebook go like at corrupt beings podcast it's corrupted beings podcast. Uh, thank you i always get confused twitter is beings podcast Instagram is Corrupted Beings Podcast. And if you want to, donate to our Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Corrupted Beings. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.